Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to come and to learn and in a place where we are not being persecuted, where we're not underground, where indeed, uh, because of your grace to us, we're able to sit here and openly, at least for now, speak about the things of God, be able to question and ask and learn, and we just thank you for that privilege. We especially thank you that you've spoken to us in your word, that we have everything that we need for faith and life therein, that there is nothing that we can throw at the Bible which will stump the Bible. We're thankful, Father, that in your word you speak so clearly that even a child can understand. Help us to understand some of the sometimes more difficult things as well. Give us eyes and uh, uh, ears to see and to hear uh, what you have to say to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, first Coffee and Questions of the month of July. As you know, Coffee and Questions is where you get to set the, 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 the course for Sunday school. You ask the questions, and we will come up with an answer. <laughs> it may not be the right answer. We'll have an answer. So Coffee and Questions, first of all, who has their coffee? And now the question is, who has a question? Okay, so the question is Hebrews 8. What are we looking at? Okay, so the question is if there's any significance in Hebrews 8.8. 8, uh, it looks like Jeremiah is, I'm sorry, where the author of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah 31 through 34 over the course of uh, four verses. Hebrews 8.8, 8, 8, 9, 10, and 11, uh, and 12. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, um, 31 through 34. And the question is, is there any significance to him using Kairos versus Naos? Is that what I heard? These are two Greek words. Let me bring it up in the original language because I haven't memorized the Greek New Testament either. And to tell you whether there's any significance. Uh, yeah, so this is a rather technical question for those of you. Um, it's, it, at first it sounds like it's daunting, but it's just like in English, there's nuances to every word or every other language. So, yeah, um, you know, I haven't looked at this in any kind of significant way. I'm reading it here in the original language. I don't think it is uh, that it matters. The only thing I would say is um, the word kainen brings this idea of not just, you know, you're talking about renewal, but it's not, not so much that as it is uh, something of a, um, of a new new feature, new quality, new um, temperament, new phase. You know, it's used like that. Um, a new year is not a renewal of the old year. It's, it's a brand new start kind of thing. Uh, I would imagine that perhaps the author of Hebrews here is just trying to say this covenant is different in quality from the other one. I'll just leave it at that. I think it's as straightforward as that. Um, that does not mean that we can then use that to sit there and say, oh, there's no connection between the old covenant and the new covenant. They are completely separate. You know, uh, sometimes I think we can overread into words uh, stuff that's not, not there. But my first blush reaction would be he's just trying to simply say, this is a covenant of a different order, which has been the message of the entire book all throughout. You know, the coming of Jesus is not like these. He's not like Moses. He's not like these old things. There is something new here. There is something different here. So... Kainan has that, that quality that, uh, or that connotation, something of a new quality to it. Does that make sense? So I'm going to guess. I can't, you know, say unless I were to do a deep study or look at commentaries, and, and they would point out perhaps 
this versus that, whatever. But I, my first blush is that's the right word because if I'm writing Hebrews or, I'm, or if I'm looking at the whole theme of Hebrews that consistently is talking about Jesus is the better than, the better Moses, the better prophet, the better, you know, everything. And then he goes on in chapters 8, 9, and 10 to talk about the better covenant. It would make sense to use the word that denotes uh, a, a different new quality. But I wouldn't, now I'm not saying you're saying this, but I wouldn't read more into that and say, well, then that means there's a clean, you know, break to, to, the, to the extent that there's nothing to do with the old covenant. Um, whereas, you know, if somebody wanted to emphasize the fact that the new covenant under Jesus is a continuation, maybe they might use a different word. So anyway, that's, that'd be my best guess. So for what it's worth. All right. Uh, uh, yes, Sam. And welcome back, by the way, from camp. Yeah, so why don't we read that whole section? Actually, you need to start in chapter 5, verse 11. So why don't we do this? Let me have somebody read chapter 5, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Can I get a volunteer for that? Okay, we got one. And then read 6, 1 through 8. Get a volunteer for doing that. All right, thank you. So let's let's hold off there. And I actually have been asked to repeat the question, so that this is being recorded. I didn't do that. So it's Hebrews six four, and we just read from chapters five eleven through six uh, twelve. And um, the question is on verse four. What does it mean? So let's look at that. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So what does that mean? And it's an excellent question because it is a question that has raised all sorts of attempts to answer it. The tension comes from this. Uh, If you look at the verse by itself, it very clearly seems to imply what if, it, and it talks about those who have been enlightened, that is those who have seen the light, those who have tasted of the Holy Spirit, so in some way uh, uh, been a part of receiving the Holy Spirit. So the implications, first blush reading is, this is a person who has been saved. We speak about, you know, Jesus is light. We speak about receiving the Spirit when you become a believer. So here's a person who's been saved and then rejects, he falls away. We started in chapter 5, verse 11, because it begins to talk about apostasy and that sort of thing. So this is a person who has fallen away, and it says at that point, there's no hope for them. There's no way that can be restored. So if you look at that by itself, you simply conclude, okay, so I can, Scripture is talking about my being saved. I can be saved. Then I can walk away from that and not be saved. That's the implication. So what do we deal with it? And a whole lot of ink has been spilled. That makes it sound like it's just been wasted. But a lot of it has been written in an attempt to wrestle with that verse. And the reason is because we begin with a premise that Scripture is, has integrity and that there is nothing that contradicts anything else in Scripture. And everywhere else in Scripture, it gives a very, very, very strong impression of, and I hate to use the term because it gets overused and is misused and certainly misapplied, but once saved, always saved. So let's start with that first, and we're going to work our way back. 
once saved, always saved. And I have to do that because we're in Baptist country and that kind of stuff is out there. The implication behind that is that you, you are saved, right? And once you're saved, now your behavior, you can do whatever you want because always saved, you know. So now you can just do and be and no consequences. You've escaped hell. The main problem with that is it sees everything with, with God as about my being saved. Everything about God and Christianity is about escaping hell. And it, you've noticed that in some churches, the whole message is always about, you know, do you want to go to hell? No, you don't want to go to hell. So it's all about going to heaven and it's all about you being saved. And this, so it becomes very transactional. And Jesus is just simply the person who does this for you. Could have been somebody else, whatever, but he's the one. So you go to Jesus and Jesus gives you a little card. It's a get out of hell free card, just like you when you play Monopoly. And you hold on to that and then you can go and do whatever you want because you can always show that card to God and say, I get out of hell, see? And I don't have, you know. So that whole conception is completely wrong. The scripture is all about you were created for God, to live for God and to glorify God and that you only find your satisfaction in living for God. It's a whole different other premise. And it talks about who you are as a human being and what you were created for and what truly satisfies. That's why I have a lot of people, even after they've checked the box and walked the aisle and got their little printed certificate in Sunday school and they said the words and all that, they still are miserable because they're still not yet living for God. True conversion happens when we turn around and we live for God, when he becomes our driving force, the thing which, well, he's not a thing, but living for him becomes the thing which drives us and which animates us. That's a whole other conception. Now, what God does is you have a record of sin, you have a record of rebellion, right? And God can have nothing to do because he's perfect and he's good and he's lovely. It's not because, oh, he's better than you. I can't have, no. You don't want anything to do with unrighteousness and with filth and with all those other things. We don't see it in ourselves, but we don't want it around us. God in his perfection can't deal with sin. And when he creates a world for us to enjoy, a world in which we can truly enjoy is one in which there is uh, uh, no murder, there is no stealing, and so on, right? When you look at something like the Ten Commandments, and I realize it's a broad answer, but it'll get us back to where we're going, especially when we look at verses, well, verse four in particular, then verse five. But um, when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's right, it's a summary of the moral law Rather than seeing, you know, when, when the book of James says that the law is freedom. What? The law is freedom? No, the law is what shackles me. I've got to do that. I've got to. No, think about it. If you want to be truly free as a human being, you want to live in a place of maximum freedom, then can you imagine when, and, and I know this, and we're becoming more and more the case. I grew up in a place like this, and increasingly the United States all over is turning into a place where in the suburbs or wherever, you're in fear for your property being stolen or your car being broken into or your own, you know, you being mugged or you being assaulted or you're, you know, even uh, murdered and that kind of stuff. That kind of living in fear is not freedom, right? So then we have a sexual revolution and we have all sorts of things that have come out of the 1960s that we're now seeing the full fruit, you know, uh, what about my children and, and, you know, are they after my kids and, and, 
this is my wife, but can she just go off with anybody or can anybody come after her? And, you know, guys that see a ring on your finger uh, and, and they, ladies and they don't care and they still come up to you and, you know, that kind of stuff. So what we end up all is in living in, in fear. It's the opposite of freedom. And so what you have is, imagine if you can live in a place where you didn't have to worry about people stealing, taking your stuff, or hurting you, or assaulting you. Or you can have a relationship with a man or a woman and not be afraid of you know, them being stolen from you or them going and leaving you. That would be freedom. That's what maximizes human flourishing. Does that make sense? So God, when he saves us, he doesn't just erase the past sins. And I'm not going to get into, you know, justification by grace through faith. That's Jesus lives the perfect life that you can't live. That record is given to you so that you have that record legally before God. Uh, that's your get out of hell free card. And Jesus pays the sins that you owe. So he does all that. But it doesn't stop there. The Holy Spirit then comes in and works in you and begins to make you the kind of person who lives according to the Ten Commandments. Because God wants those kind of people for himself. And his new community, which is the church, and ultimately when Jesus comes back and restores his kingdom in its fullness, it will be those kind of people. We all know that that's not in us naturally. It is the work of the Spirit. So if we set up how that goes... The getting out of hell is just because if you're in hell, you obviously can't be with God and can't have the kind of life. So he saves you so that you can live. Like somebody said, because as Protestants, we've made so much of you're not saved by the law that we've forgotten that there's a place for the law. We are saved not, we're not saved by the law, right? We've so res- resisted that because we've looked and said the medieval church had so much emphasis on living by the law and that it was your keeping of the law that saved you. And so we're saying, no, you'll never be able to live according to the law perfectly enough to be saved. So we're not saved by the law. We're saved by Jesus keeping the law. You're not saved by the law, but you're saved for the law. Does that make sense? You're saved not by your keeping it, but now that you're saved, that is how you're to live because that is the... In other words, if I ask you, how do you glorify God and enjoy him forever? And you would sit, sit there and say, I'm not sure. So God says, here's how you do it. These 10 rules, very simple, are designed for maximum human flourishing. If you live this way, we as a people uh, will flourish, right? So presented in that context, we can then begin to look a little bit at Hebrews 4 and understand what it's beginning to get at. God has designed us for a relationship with him and with one another designed around this. So if you notice, he's talking to a people and we get into this thing that um, is a little maybe complex. So God has a covenant that he makes. A covenant is a relationship agreement. He enters into a relationship and he does so through an agreement. And the covenant basically says, here are the terms of that relationship. If you think about it, every relationship has terms right? You might say, no, I mean, I'd see that person at the checkout counter. There's no relationship. There's no terms. Of course there is. It's unspoken. It's you, you, you just learned it. You learned it when your mom would take you to the grocery store. That person will nod at you and say hello, and you're supposed to say, hi, how are you? I'm fine. Those are unspoken terms, but they're terms. You don't sit there and go much beyond that, right? It's, it's just, we know what the terms are of that relationship. 
we don't assault them. They do our checkout. They don't tell us that we look funny or something, you know, whatever. We have terms of our relationship. So every relationship has terms. So God in his relationship with his people has laid out the terms. I'm to be your God. You're to be my people. Here's how it looks like. By the way, uh, just a little aside, Ten Commandments presented to us in Exodus 20. Uh, There's a prologue. I am the God who, say again, yes, who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. So notice that God does not say, you're slaves in Egypt, here's my law. Keep this law, and I will deliver you from Egypt. No, I delivered you from Egypt, therefore, here's my law, and here's how you are to behave as my people. Just a little aside that even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the whole order is I've already saved you. Here's how you know how to live like a saved people. Okay, so going back to God has made this this relationship with us and he gives us his law and he says this is the terms of the relationship and you are to keep it. And when we are truly worked on by the Holy Spirit, we call that regeneration, the new birth that Jesus used. Regeneration is just from the Greek word of new birth, literally, uh, right, Uh, in, in, in Greek. Jesus talks about you must be born again and so on. That new birth empowers you and begins to enable you to live according to the law in a way that truly glorifies God and honors him. But there are many people, we don't know how many, we don't have exact numbers, who make professions of faith but never are truly converted. They never have that regeneration. They come to church and so on. We've had him right in this church some 10 years ago. We had a guy who was nominated for deacon, we all thought at least the people nominated, he make a great deacon. And we're like, okay. And I had seen him. He had been here about two years. He seemed like an upstanding guy, was friendly. We would have fellowship meals. He would shake hands. Great guy, right? And we go to him and we'd say, do you want to do deacon training or officer training like all the others? You know, they're about to do officer training. And his answer was, no, I really don't. And I got him to thinking. And then he finally stepped away and said, you know what? I'm leaving my wife. I'm leaving the church. I've been pretending for 10 years married to her, trying to please her, but that's not who I am. So this kind of stuff happens, right? There's a lot of people. At least he noticed, finally realized that he was pretending. There are some folks who spend their whole life in church and think, I've been a really good person and I've tried really hard. And when that day comes, God's going to weigh and he's going to see that I'm better than, and you fill in the blank of whoever you're comparing yourself to. Just remember, if you're one of those persons, that the judgment is not with other people here as the standard. The judgment is what Jesus talks about at, uh, at the end of chapter 5 in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you think you can match that standard, you've never said, you've never done, and you've never thought anything. That's wrong. Go for it. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to work. But I'm telling you now, I'm, I'm saying that smiling, but like this is like big time serious because it's too late if you figure that out on Judgment Day. It really is. And that's a, that's a desperate day in which to figure that stuff out. Unfortunately, there are many people who are in that boat. That's what Hebrews 4 is getting at. So now, let's pop in. Notice what he says. He starts in chapter 5, verses 11, and he's saying there's a whole bunch of you He's writing to Jews who've been converted, so, you know, or, or at least have said Jesus is the Messiah. And he's saying, some of you, and he actually starts this in chapter 4. Some of you 
haven't really kind of bought into this. Some of you are going to fall away. Paul has said the same thing in Romans chapter 9. Uh, there he was in 9, 10, and 11. There Paul is talking about, he says, not all Israel is Israel. Huh? What does that mean? Of course all Jews are Jews. He's saying there's Jews, there's Israel, people that, you know, okay, he's got a Jewish mom, Jewish dad, right? And Yep, he's been snipped. That's a Jew. And everything looks right, but they've never truly been regenerated. They've never truly followed God as they ought to. And he says, those folks, yeah, they're the ones who are rejecting the Messiah, because that's what he's dealing with, is why would they reject the Messiah? But then there are those who have. Now, here's the author of Hebrews. I keep saying the author of Hebrews because we don't know who wrote it. And he's writing, and he's saying, even some of you who are now going to Messianic Jewish churches, not the Gentile churches in Corinth and Rome, but, you know, here, we don't exactly know where these guys are at, but he's telling them, there are some of you there that by your behavior and by other actions, you, you might be falling away. Watch out, because others have done that. So as he gets into it, um, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, grow up. Don't, you know, the, the elementary doctrine is just the basics I just talked about. Being, you know, hey, you can't save yourself. You don't have what it takes. Jesus did it for you. Trust in him. He's, he's saying you don't reject that, but you've got to go beyond that. And he doesn't want you to, as he says here, lay again a foundation of rep- repentance. He's not going to go through all the steps. Repenting from dead works, that is, doing works, doing, keeping the law and thinking that that's going to be sufficient, right? So we're not going to get into all that. We're not going to get into talking about things like the resurrection and so on uh, and so on. He wants to move on. But then in verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. So that's where we have to wrestle with. What does that mean that they've tasted and they've shared and they've seen and all that other stuff? Does it mean that they're believers? Well, you can take one of two answers. You can say they're out and out believers and they have fallen away, they've lost their salvation. And where else in the Bible it says that we don't, then the Bible is just wrong. You have different guys writing, and they just have different views. So that is where a lot of the liberal churches today say that, because they see the, uh, the, the Scripture as nothing more than a human document. But we've already rejected that premise, and so we've got to figure out what does that mean. To answer that, and that's why I'm saying, if you look in any commentary in Hebrews, this is like the longest section right here. So you've asked the question. I'm going to have to say some things without, because of our time. Oh, yes, coming up on 1015. So to back that up, first of all, uh, usually it's understood as a person who is in a position like this. They come to church, they do all this stuff. When it talks about sharing in the Holy Spirit, which is the big one, because you can understand almost all the other ones. They, when a person is here in our fellowship, like that person I was talking about, he enjoyed people who cared for him, who prayed for him, he enjoyed, uh, like, if my car breaks down, right, what do I do? I don't, you know, I call you guys, and somebody will be there, and, and that kind of stuff. You ever notice, I'm sure you have, if you're a little older, and you have some neighbors, um, and something terrible happens, a divorce, uh, a sickness, and they're all alone. They've got nobody, right? That doesn't happen here. We've got everybody. In fact, you might, after a while, you have to beat beating people off of the stick because everybody's caring for you and loving on you. That person who is here in our midst, 
but who was not really a believer, enjoyed those privileges. So just in general, I can go through each one of those things and talk about that. The one that hangs everybody, that gets everybody is the sharing in the Holy Spirit. Because we suppose that to mean that they're saved. But I'm going to throw out something. Uh, maybe we'll take it up next week in, um, in Coffee and Questions. In one sense, you cannot do anything. No human being can do anything without the Holy Spirit. What? Yes. Like, like an artist. Um, you know, I come from a family of artists. A lot of artists are pagans. They're not believers. And yet they do incredible art, visual art, uh, you know, music, whatever, uh, performing arts. They, they do all that, and they do it fantastically. But it, so look at the prophets. Look at, Sam, um, uh, look at Saul, and it talks about the Holy Spirit coming down upon Saul and, and the prophets and animating them. Uh, I'll have to defend this next week if we need to. But the answer comes down to you actually need the Holy Spirit to do anything. He animates us, if, as it were. And so all the different commentators here have basically said, this is a person who's heard the word, who has had the Holy Spirit uh, enable him to at least say certain things and whatever, like any other human being would, whether they're a believer or not. But in the end, it does not say that they were regenerated. They did not make that flip. So that's, once you say that, then it all falls into place. And this is a person then, and then you, then you get into verse 5, which I think we're 10, 15, we're really out of time. Um, but we've fallen away without any hope of restoration and so on. There's a lot of debate as to what that really means. And it's one of those passages in the Bible that I think you have to say well-meaning, reverent scholars disagree enough that I'm, you know, I'm not going to sit there and say dogmatically this is the answer. What I would say, and just like asking me um, creation days, and I have pretty good defense of what I view the days of creation to be, but I wouldn't sit there and say I would stake everything on it. What I would say is here is it's not talking about a person who is just kind of wrestling and not, you know, this is a person who at one point just finally walks away and realizes this is, this is not what I'm, much, much like we had this gentleman do. And there's no hope of that person when they've closed their heart of ever enjoying even the beginning of those privileges that they had for the while that they were in the covenant community. Uh, some people sit there and say that that means that they will never be truly restored. Others sit there and say, no, it just means that as long as he hardens his heart, that's not going to happen. But there is some question there. I'm going to stop there. There really is a whole lot more to say on that. Um, but I wanted to put it in the context of it's not as simple as some transactional, you're in hell, you're out of, you know, going to hell, you're not going to hell, you got your card. And that kind of thing. It's really part of this big complex of stuff. Being in the covenant community, what does that mean? Not all of Israel is Israel. Not every believer, not every person who professes faith has actually been regenerated. There's all sorts of reasons why people profess faith uh, out of pressure, like this guy did because he wanted to be with his wife, uh, or just sometimes they think that's the good thing to do. Um, but in the end, it is a warning that starts in chapter 4 for the book of Hebrews that basically tells each and every one of us to examine ourselves. Do we live for God or are we living for all sorts of other things? Because even living for your get-out-of-hell-free card is not what we live for. We live for him. He is enough for us. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We've really gone way late. David Boxerman's here. He's wondering why we're still in Sunday school. Um, Okay, let me close. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that in Jesus Christ we have everything that we need 
to have a right relationship with you. And it is you, O oh God, that we long for. It is Jesus whom we want to be with and whom we want to be like. We thank you that he lived that perfect life that none of us is capable of living, that we have been able to repent from our dead works, our reliance on, uh, on what we've done. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says he takes the very best of things that he's done and he counts them as rubbish uh, because in the end they're not enough. And so, Father, help us to hear this admonition from the author of Hebrews that our reliance has to be wholly upon the finished work of Jesus, on his perfect life, his substitutionary life, lived in our place, and his perfect and substitutionary death where he pays the, the penalty that we owe you for our sin. And may we, Father, then truly be animated uh, through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit to love you and to live for you and to show our love for you by caring for one another. May we have that, that, um, that critical uh, spirit looking at ourselves and examining ourselves to be sure that that is why we live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.